All right, if you would pray with me before we jump into God's word this morning. God, we know that the only way that we can hear from you is if your spirit moves. We know that you've given us your word to show us Jesus, to reveal to us who you are and who we are in you. And so we pray now that you would show us Christ by the preaching of your word, that you would reveal your glory in the stories of old, that you would do it, and as you do, that each of our hearts would confess that Christ is Lord to your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so the last time that we gathered together, we looked at Genesis 15, and the story that we looked at uh, for Abraham, uh, he was still Abram. God spoke to him. Uh, he had just delivered Abram out of the battle with the kings of Sodom and Ketelaomer, that big skirmish. Uh, Abraham wins. Melchizedek comes and blesses God. You remember this? And Abram uh, is confronted by the king of Sodom, and, and he does not accept what the king of Sodom wants to give him because he recognizes that God and God alone uh, blesses and gives him glory. But then immediately thereafter, he has this crisis of faith. Um, God has promised him all the way back in Genesis chapter 12 that he would be a father of many nations and that through him, through his offspring, the entire world would be blessed. And he doesn't understand how it is that he doesn't yet have a child. And so he says to, to God, you've made this promise, but some distant relative is going to inherit my estate Inherit everything. I have no son. And God says, that man's not going to be your son. That man's not going to be your heir. I'm going to give you a son. And Abram says, how can I know this to be true? And God enters into covenant with Abraham, uh, with Abram at the time. And remember we said that, the, that God gives us covenant. God covenants with us as a gift for, for several different reasons. And we mentioned the fact that Abram is filled with doubt. And so God covenants with him to give him assurance in the midst of doubt. And to remind Abram that he is frail, but that God is supreme and sovereign over all things. And then to provide a means of, of grace. And we're really going to look at that more today. Because Abram's, uh, God's covenant with Abram Last week was very one-sided. God said, I'm going to do this for you. I'm going to, going to provide this for you. I'm splitting animals here to prove to you. I'm going through this ceremony to assure you that my promises are true, that I'm your God, and what I say I'm going to do. And, and Abram sees that. And, and the, the promise of, of God to Abram and if you were in home group, you, you might have noticed this. It's remarkably similar to the promise of God 
to Noah after the flood, when God says, be fruitful and multiply, I'm not going to destroy the people of the earth anymore with flood. This is not how I'm going to bring judgment on my people. You will be fruitful and multiply, and you will rule over the earth. And what does he say to Abram? I'm going to make you a father of many nations. We're going to see that expounded upon here. Kings are going to come from Abram. And so God makes this covenant with Abram, and it seems a lot like the covenant with Noah, which seems remarkably like what God told Adam and Eve in the beginning. Be fruitful and multiply. Have dominion over the earth. Be my children. Share in my duties. Have this inheritance that can only come from relationship with me. This is the essence of humanity, the essence that has been given to humanity by God is redeemed, is restored in the covenants. And that's not to say that it's one covenant. God covenants uniquely with Noah and with Abram and with David and in between that with the Israelite people through Moses. They're unique covenants, but they share this same theme. And one way that you can say that, one way that you can um, speak of what God's covenant with his people is, is, is this. Ultimately, God's covenant boils down to this phrase. I will be your God, and you will be my people. Do you hear that? All the blessings that could be poured out in a covenant are poured out in that phrase. I will be your God. And you will be my people. And so we see the blessings. We've seen the first half of that in Genesis 15. That's what we looked at. That's why it's one-sided. It's because God is showing us what it means that he is our God. And it's amazing. It means that he keeps his promises. It means that he gives to us his inheritance. It means that as a people, we are fruitful and multiply. Now listen, that may look different from person to person. If you are unable to have children, and there are people who are just wanting, we're going to read about two of those people. And they cannot, God has not given to them Children, does that mean that the blessings of God aren't upon you? No. Does it mean that the curse is active and present in your life and in the world? Absolutely. The curse is here. And God will overcome that. But sometimes being fruitful and multiplying looks like adoption. Sometimes it looks like fostering. Sometimes it doesn't even look like having children. Sometimes it looks like proclaiming the gospel to the lost and seeing them see Jesus and turn in faith to him. And so we've been called to be fruitful and to multiply. And that's going to happen because God is who he says he is. He keeps his promise. He is a covenant God. He said to us, I will be your God. And so part of that is you will be fruitful and multiply. Part of that is you will have the blessing of the land. All right. And so God says to Abram, just like uh, in in 15, just like he says in 12, that you're going to go to this place that I've given you to possess. It's yours. For Adam, that place was the garden. 
That was the land. Now let me tell you about the land. Like it's not meant to, and I, and I know that a lot of theological discourse, especially in the last hundred years, has maybe a little more than a hundred years, has focused around an actual geographic plot of land. But there are things about this land that the Bible tells us that lets us know that when God says, I've promised you the land, even if he is speaking in some regard about a plot of land in the Middle East, he's talking about something much bigger. Because in the land there's peace. And there's wholeness. The land flourishes. It overflows with good things. Just like in the garden, God gave Adam all the plants that were good to look at and good to eat, is what the Bible says. Everything that was needed for human flourishing, beauty and nourishment, was in this land. So the land that Abram was called to and looked to was flowing with milk and honey. It's this abundant place. And I've spoken a little bit anachronistically there, but don't worry. It's the same land that was promised to the people uh, through Moses. And later on, we see David continues that promise saying that if you continue in belief, you can enter my rest. You can enter the land. Um, But the point is that this land of God is where shalom is. Now, shalom doesn't mean simply peace. It means wholeness, completion, peace. And that can only come if the land bears one characteristic, and that is the presence of the Lord God. So the land is where the God of the land dwells. And so the people in the land experience the one true blessing, and that is the presence of God himself. And we talked about that. a couple months ago, that what makes heaven heavenly is the presence of Jesus. No other attribute, no specific geographic location. What makes heaven heavenly is the presence of God. And God says, I will be your God. That's Genesis 15. Now, since we last looked at Abram's life in Genesis 15, 10 years have passed. All right, and, and, and really we're covering Genesis 16 and 17. I told you last week it's a two-part sermon, so the sermon is the God who covenants part two. And, and we see that we're going to focus primarily on chapter 17, but 16 and 17 go together. And if you recall, I said that God is progressively revealing, progressively covenanting with Abram. In 15, we see one part of it. I will be your God. What we're going to see in 17 is you will be my people. But right there in the middle is 16. And in chapter 16, what we see is that it's been 10 years since God made that promise to Abram. 10 years since God said that your very flesh and blood will be your heir. 10 years since God said to Abram, you will bear a son. How many times in your life have you heard, either through scripture or through confirmation of the community of faith, the Lord saying to you, I'm going to bless you? Have you recounted the promises of God? 
And God calls you to something. And you know God is calling you to this thing. And then a year passes. And then two years pass. Then ten years pass. This is where Abram is and Sarah. God has promised them children. And ten years has passed. And even now, well, especially now, with our lifespan, ten years is a big deal. If God promises you a child, promises you a child, and you're 27, and then all of a sudden you're 37, you're looking at the heavens quite anxiously saying, time is running out, God. Abram is considerably older than that. Considerably. 85, 86 years old. 10 years is a big deal. And this time passes and their faith grows weary. And Sarah says to Abraham, I have a maidservant. Perhaps the way that God wants to fulfill the promise in you is that you that you bear a child with her. And so just listen to this story. Just listen. Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall still obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. And after Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that he had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked upon me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and Hagar fled from her. All right, and, and there's a reason that this story is in here. And believe it or not, it's not to explain why there's conflict in the Middle East today. We're going to see in chapter 17 that God does grant his promise because that's the kind of God that he is. He keeps his promises. And he does it 13 years later. 13 years later. And so what we have set up is two different paths, two different ways that people can go or move toward the promise of God, or so they think. What's happening here? What's happening in this story of, of Hagar? Sarai, Abram, they don't believe God. 
They don't believe that God is going to give them what he promised. They're becoming impatient. They want the promises of God. And so they go about seeking after the promises of God by their own strength. And anytime, anytime you go about that by your own strength, what you're really doing is saying, God, I know better than you how to accomplish your will. And whenever you presume greater knowledge than God about how his will is to come about, you invariably walk away from him. You invariably move away from him. They're trying to work their way into God's blessing. They're trying to scheme their way into God's blessing. It might not seem the same as you to you, but essentially Sarai, like Eve, has told Abram, like she did, like Eve told Adam, this fruit will give us what we are looking for. Eat it. Take it. And they attempt to go about their own means of becoming godlike and getting what God has given them. They confuse who they are and who God is, and they make a terrible mistake. Similarly, And the whole Abram story is showing us the juxtaposition between how God does things and how we do things, right? What happens right before the Abram saga begins? The Tower of Babel. What's that a story of? People trying to work their way to God. And God's saying, no, that's not how it's going to go down. This is how I'm going to do it. I'm going to pick some obscure guy in the middle of nowhere so that you cannot say that it was of our own strength, our own ingenuity, our own wisdom, our own might. I will do it so that the only way that you can make sense of what happened is if you believe that I, the Lord your God, made it happen. And it's the same. And it's the same as a legalistic approach to righteousness. It's a works-based, merit-based approach to God. And it cannot work. And in case you either think I'm stretching this a little bit too much, or if you think I'm really clever, that's not me. That's the Apostle Paul in Galatians 4. Because he says, you can look at this story as an analogy. These two women, Hagar, the slave woman, she's Mount Sinai. And when you attempt to reach God by climbing Mount Sinai, you never get there. You die a slave. When you approach God like that, you always walk away from him. Jesus essentially says the same things to the Pharisees. Look, you can't earn this. You think you're children of Abram? But you're not children of the promise. We're going to see what that means in just a few minutes. So they're acting like children of the slave woman. And for you, let this be freeing. Let this be freeing. You cannot earn, you cannot merit, you cannot smart your way to God. has to come by 
God. Remember that God establishes his covenant to provide for us a means of receiving his blessing that is grace. God establishes his covenant to remind us that all of life is grace. And let me just make another quick aside, an aside within, and I feel like I'm performing inception right now. Um, Husbands, this is for you. Because right here, we see a continuation of a biblical pattern that you cannot deny, and that is this, that every time the husband actively or passively defers their God-given spiritual responsibility as head of the home to the wife, disharmony follows. Every time. I'll say that again for you. Every time that the husband actively or passively. Now many of you don't actively give over that responsibility. But you're like Abram. You're sure willing to say, sure, sure thing, honey. Sure thing. You're willing to defer that responsibility. And let your wife or no one at all take spiritual responsibility for your house. And every time that happens, disharmony follows. And let me tell you this. You may, disharmony might not look like poverty or it might not look like want of any kind. But, but marital harmony in times of want, is to be greatly preferred over disharmony and great abundance. Did you hear that? Do you hear the, the do you hear, let that sink in? Man. Because some of you defer the spiritual leadership of your home for the sake of being in the office and making more money. I'm trying to get us secure here. Marital harmony in times of insecurity is to be much preferred over marital harmony in times of absolute security. Do your job. Be men. Do not defer that responsibility. And if right now you realize, I've deferred that responsibility, you have this opportunity. Stop, repent, turn to Jesus. Fulfill your role. God has given it to you. All right, and so this happens, and and we're going to move on now to Genesis 17. And, And if you recall, ultimately, God's covenant boils down to, I will be your God. And you will be my people. And so let's look at chapter 17 when, and this will be on the screen, and just just follow along with me. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you, and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face, and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer 
shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you, to your offspring, and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, For an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. All right, and so now, in this passage, what we're seeing is God's terms for Abram, for Abraham, and thus for us. I will be your God, you will be my people. Last week, if you didn't realize it, what we were discussing was what it is that God is our God. So now, what does it mean to be the people of God? How are you to be the people of God? Well, his covenant was, was um, revealed progressively over 23 years. And, and, and we're going to look at that progressive revelation and we're going to make some assertions. Right? And so you're asking, what things does God require of us who are in his covenant? What does it mean to be the people of God? And I can think of three things. And the first is actually in Genesis 15. Because God says to Abram that, uh, that Eliezer of Damascus will not be his heir, but instead that his very own offspring will be. And Abram, it says, believe the Lord. And he counted it to him as righteousness. The first term of our covenant, the first term for us is, is faith. Believing God. And now this belief is, of course, not just some sort of scientific belief in some fact, but rather believing into God, into Christ is what we're told to do. Believe into Christ. And what that means is that you trust that God will keep his promises and you live in light of that. This is faith. You cannot enter into the covenant. You cannot be the people of God except through faith. What is your faith in? Who is your faith in? Who are you trusting? 
for your eternal security? Who are you trusting to be the giver of blessings to you? If it's not God, then what scripture is saying is that if you're not walking by faith, you're not walking with God. Let me encourage you just a little bit because no sooner does Abram believe in faith and it's counted to him as righteousness than he doubts God, then he defers spiritual responsibility to his wife, then he tries to achieve grace on his own by his own means. This is an eternal, well, not an eternal, this is a lifelong battle. As long as you are human, as long as you have the breath of life in you, you will try to earn God's favor. One way or another. Which leads us to the second term of God's covenant. And it's in chapter 17. God says, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless that I may make my covenant with you. All right? And so God says to Abram, walk before me and be blameless. Time and time again, we're told to be holy as the Lord God is holy. To walk in Christ. To walk with the Lord. But here's the thing. Before God called Abram, he didn't do that. Before God calls you, we don't do that. There's none righteous, not even one. None seek God. None will. Except for that the Spirit of God move in their hearts, call them to repentance. And they do. Do you hear that? Do you hear what the second term is? It's repentance. He doesn't say it in that term to Abram, to Abraham, but that's what it is. Walk blameless before me means you have to acknowledge that you're not, and you have to turn and begin to walk blamelessly before God. You must repent. Now there's faith, and faith precedes repentance. Your righteousness is not based on your repentance. It's based on your faith. However, do not fool yourself into believing that you have faith if you are not repentant. Do not say, I have faith, and then live as you please. Because that, what that means is you don't. Because we don't just have faith that God is a loving Father who can save us. We also have faith that God is a holy and righteous judge who cannot tolerate sin and may indeed damn us. He is both. And you cannot live a faithful life that is not simultaneously a repentant life. Martin Luther in his 95 theses nailed to the door in Wittenberg, the first thesis, thesis point <laughs> is this, that all of life is repenting. All of life is perpetually recognizing who you are and believing 
that God is who he is. It's perpetually turning away from yourself and towards God. Every day, we die to ourselves and we live to God. We walk before him blamelessly. Let's look at that word for just a second because this doesn't mean that you don't sin. Abram didn't all of a sudden after this point when he gets a new name, Abraham, become this sinless guy. Paul becomes a Christian and still battles with sin and is still saying, there's this old man in me that keeps on making me do the things that I hate and not the things that I know I should and and want to do. And yet Paul stood blamelessly before God. Why? Because our blame is given to Jesus. When we receive in faith Jesus Christ, what happens is that the blame that we deserve is transferred to him. He took it on the cross, and then we get his righteousness, which means that when God sees us, he sees Jesus, and Jesus is blameless. So we, by entering into this covenant in faith and by repenting and turning to Jesus, are blameless before God. And that's a great thing. Do you struggle with guilt? Turn to Jesus. Do you love sin? Are you not even wrestling with sin? Hear these words now. Hear the words of the Lord. Let his spirit move. Repent and turn to Jesus. Turn to Jesus. He will make you blameless. You do not have to live in the shadow of guilt. You do not have to live in the shadow of the past. Jesus has covered your iniquity. And in him you are blameless before God. So we repent. We live in faith and in repentance. And there's a third thing. And it's sacrament. What is a sacrament? It's a means of grace. It's a means by which God communicates to his people his grace to sustain them and to revive them. And so God institutes this old covenant sacrament, circumcision. And I want you to understand something because the grammar here, um, the the it's it's telling. In verse ten, he says, "This is my covenant. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised." God says, this is my covenant, that you be circumcised. And then later he says, that it shall be a sign of my covenant. And so, what we see is that circumcision is this thing that is a sign of the covenant. 
and yet, at the same time, it is his covenant. What does God mean? He means this. That circumcision is a sign by which you show that you are part of the covenant, but it is also necessary for you to be a part of this covenant community. Which means you cannot be a faithful member of the Old Testament covenant community of God without circumcision. So does that mean that circumcision saved them? No, we've already addressed that. It was faith that saved them. It was faith that made them children of God. But in their faith, they could not but repent. And they could not but be circumcised. Which means you could be circumcised and not saved. But you could not be saved and uncircumcised. So what then is our sacrament that God has given to us? We have two. One is, the, one is communion, and we talked about that last week. The other one is baptism. I want to talk to you for a second about baptism. Because baptism is a sign of the covenant similar, not exactly like circumcision was. How is it not like circumcision? Well, the answer is obvious. Circumcision could only be to males. Baptism is for everyone. Baptism is spoken of a little bit differently. That There's baptism of the Spirit as well as water baptism. And then we see later that it's circumcision of the heart. It's the same thing. It's different, but the continuity is there. When we talk about baptism, we often talk about it in this manner, that baptism is exclusively my declaring to the world that I trust and am going to follow Jesus. It's a sign of my faithfulness. And in part, that's true. But circumcision was not a sign of Abram's covenant with God. It was a sign of God's covenant with Abram. It was a sign of God's faithfulness to him. In the same way, baptism is not just this sign or this public proclamation that we are going to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. I'm going to get baptized. It's more than that. It's a sign that God has covenanted with his people and that now, by his grace, I am one of them. Baptism doesn't just proclaim that you want to follow Jesus. Baptism states that you are his. Let me push that just a little bit further. Baptism does not save you, but the scriptures know no one who is in the family of Christ who is not baptized. This isn't just a matter of obedience, but it's not a matter of salvation. Do you hear that? Like, let that mystery sink in a little bit because it, it hurts my brain too. Baptism doesn't save you. Faith, given to you by grace, saves you. However, if you are faithful, just like you will repent, you will be baptized. 
You cannot say, I have faith in Jesus, but I will not be baptized. That's how scripture looks at it. And so if you haven't been baptized, and you realize this is something I need to do, talk to Brett, talk to an elder, talk to me. We'll we'll figure out ways to work it out. We'll get it done because you need to be baptized. Because baptism is, is a sign of the covenant like circumcision was. And it's not just a sign of the covenant. It is, in a sense, the way that God pours out his grace on you. It enters, him, it enters you into the covenant community of Christ. Now listen to this and then, and then we'll be pretty much done. Listen to this. We have a lot of examples of people in the Old Testament who were circumcised but were not faithful. However, they received the blessings of being a part of the national visible community of Christ, which is Israel. Which means that when God blessed Israel, they received that blessing by being in their midst. And so there, there's, this, there's this beginning to understand that there's people who are part of the visible community of Israel, but then they're not a part of the spiritual community. And so I, I want to I I say that. I want it to be clear that I'm not saying just because someone is baptized they're saved, but it does enter them into membership of the church, the visible community, uh, covenant community of Christ, and there are blessings that come with that. There are blessings that come with being in community. Benevolence, prayer, instruction, Family. These are blessings that only the church can provide in its fullness. And so you ought to desire to be a part of that community. And baptism is a necessary step for you to be a part of the visible community of Christ. And this is all a part of God's covenant. And so to combine last week and this week really quickly, because this is why God gives us covenant. First, to assure his people in the midst of doubt. Then to remind us of our frailty and his supremacy. Then to provide for us a means of salvation, Grace. And it comes as Jesus perfectly fulfills the covenant on both ends. He fulfills our side of the covenant by living holy and blameless before God, by following after God. He fulfills God's side of the covenant by dying because we broke it. And so he fulfills the covenant and in that we have grace. We have salvation, we have security forever. Baptism shows us what it means, or baptism, the covenant shows us what it means and what it looks like to be God's people. And as we just saw, baptism draws us, or covenant, by way of baptism, draws us into community.
If the promise for a- is for Abram and for his male servants and for their children and their children after that throughout generations, in Acts we see that this promise given to us in Christ is, is for your children, for your children's children. Like this promise comes with community. And so God uses his covenant to draw people into his community where they are his people and he is their God. And so it brings us all the way around to the beginning of last week. Are you trusting God? Are you trusting in God? Do you trust in Jesus? See, Abram didn't even have the benefit that we have. Abram couldn't look back through the cross. We can. And we can see that all the promises of God, all the covenants of God, they're yes and amen in Jesus and his work on the cross. You don't have to be broken. You don't have to let doubt consume you. You don't have to be overwhelmed by guilt. You don't have to earn your own way. You don't have to be tired of striving and of seeking and of working. You don't have to live in the misery of the world. You don't have to live as people without hope when someone you love passes away. You don't have to live in fear of what's next because God has made a covenant with you. He he will be your God and you can be His. And he's proven it through Jesus. So trust in him. Let's pray. God, thank you for Jesus, the great covenant keeper. Thank you for the new covenant that is in his broken flesh and his poured out blood, the the perfected covenant. Thank you that you have always saved people the same way, by faith in you. And that the power of your spirit awakens us unto faith. And so God, if there are hearts that are stirring right now, trying to figure out, do I believe this? Should I believe this? Should I follow after this? The only reason that their hearts are, we know, is because your spirit is talking to them. And so I pray that anything that is keeping people from receiving the grace that comes from belief in Christ, I pray that you would remove it. And in this moment, they would trust your spirit, that they would confess the Lordship of Jesus Christ, and that they would enter into the bounty that is being a member of your covenant family. And as we go, I pray that we would live like people whose God is the Lord. And that as people see that, that they would see our life and that they would glorify you, Yahweh, in heaven. And ultimately we know that We await some of the fulfillment, the fullness of your covenantal blessings, the land free from sin and death and brokenness. And so we pray, as we've already prayed today, come quickly, Lord Jesus. To you be all glory and honor, dominion forever. Amen. If you'd stand with me for the reading of God's word.
for those of you that like to look it up, I'm going to be reading from 1 John in chapter 1, actually chapter 2, and uh, mine's titled Christ Our Advocate, and I'll take a short little rabbit trail midway, but it'll be quick. Verse 1, my little children, I am writing these things to you that so that your sin, excuse me, so that you may not sin, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation, and here's my rabbit trail. It's from the Greek, Elasmos, and if you're Greek with us, please forgive my translation. It means a sacrifice that bears God's wrath and turns it to favor. He is the propitiation of our sin, but not for ours only, but for those, or excuse me, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Go in peace. travel before I walk down one that led me to you and how many dreams did unravel